We're going to pick up in Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Uh, Let's pray before we read our passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you uh, for Jesus, um, the Christ. And so, Father, today as we spend the next few weeks reflecting on his coming, as we celebrate as a as a nation in our culture, sort of through the Christmas season, uh, that's taken on its own nation, uh, nature and, and, and feel. Uh, Lord, we ask that as we celebrate Christmas this season, uh, you would help us to, to ponder deep things about who Jesus was, uh, that we would come to a greater understanding and appreciation um, that your son stepped out of heaven to, to earth to be born of a virgin and that we would really examine the implications of this truth. Um, Lord, may we grow closer to you day by day. May we surrender you our lives. Um, Lord, we ask that as we cover these 25 verses in the Gospel of Luke, we ask that your Spirit would guide us, Lord, illuminate the meaning of this text, help us to understand uh, the setting um, that this was set in historically, Lord, we are grateful for all that you've done and are doing in our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel Back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before before him 
in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we study this passage of scripture. And it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so, so here we are starting Luke as, as I was, you know, Anytime I find myself in between books of the Bible and have to kind of do a pseudo-topical message, it's the worst thing for me. It's like, ah, oh, what? How, where? How are we going to tackle Christmas this year? What are we going to do? How? How can I fill four weeks uh, most appropriately? And so the first two chapters of Luke um, are probably some of my favorite. Luke, probably of all the Gospels, is is my very favorite because it's written by a Gentile to a guy like me who has no biblical foundation. Uh, well, now I do, but. But you know what I'm saying. Before Christ, before I really became a Christian, started studying the Bible, I, like, I don't think. I wish I could have the 17-year-old Gunner and ask him some questions, like, "Can you tell me what Easter celebrates? Can you tell me what Christmas?" So I think I could get Christmas. I don't know that I could have answered the Easter question. Um, but Luke is sort of written, sort of he takes it, sort of very uh, mathematically is the wrong, but. But as a historian, he was a physician, great detail, and he researched, studied, interviewed eyewitness people. He's the only Gentile in, that wrote uh, one of the Gospels, and he, he, he basically gets everything together, and he pins really, I think, one long book that came in two parts. There's Luke, and then there's Acts. And so I love his detail. I love the intensity in which he writes. I I, I appreciate um, that he addresses the issue at hand about who is Jesus in a way of seriousness and in a way of sort of convincing those of us uh, who weren't there to see and to feel and to touch this Jesus to be able to be um, affirmed that what we're dealing with is, is historical truth. Much of his writing, as all of really the New Testament and, and Old Testament writings, are, are grounded in history and geography. When you look at other uh, world religions and you start going historically to the claims and the geography of the claims, there's not validation there. 
But as you dig into the geographical regions that the Bible touches, they discover all sorts of amazing things that authenticate the word of God, not sort of discredit it. And so these first four verses I love. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So Luke lived during the time of Jesus. He didn't walk and, and, and touch and, and live amongst Jesus. He came later in the story. But he walked and lived, and the, the account happened in his lifetime. And he was able to interview um, those who saw firsthand. Look at verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Key word there. That this is, if this was a court trial, Luke went to these people and said, were you there? Did you touch him? Did you feel him? Did he say these things? Did he not say this? Did he do this? Did he not do this? He interviewed everybody. History tells us that it was believed that he like even interviewed like Mary, Jesus's mother, to sort of to get the account of what happened. Beginning, they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he says, while all these other people wrote their historical account about Jesus, I also did my own investigation. He was sort of the, the original Lee Strobel. Uh, for those of you that aren't aware of Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel was an atheist who got married, his wife came to Christ, and he did sort of courtroom reporting. He felt like when his wife became a Christian, he got the sort of the bait and switch because they had a certain lifestyle and the way they lived, and Christianity was a conflict for how he lived his life. And so his plan was basically to take all of the, the evidence, interview all of the leading scholars of the day, and his aim was to disprove Christianity. And he thought if he could disprove Christianity then his wife would have to unconvert and sort of go back to their old lifestyle. Well, the story goes, after all of the evidence was compiled and began writing about it, uh, he's a pastor now. So, uh, <laughs> so that's kind of what happened to Luke. And Luke says, well, I have all of this information. I've collected all of this. It seemed like it would be good for me to sort of lay it out in consecutive order to this guy, Theophilus. There's some that, uh, there are some that... that suggests that Theophilus is sort of the believers, an unnamed person. I tend to believe that Theophilus was, was actually like a person, that he's writing to this person in, in authority that would have, um, that, that was longing for this information that was outside of the faith. Verse 4, key, so that we get a hynoclause, which is a Greek word that, that it, it explains to us, why did Luke write the first three verses? It's the purpose statement. It's a purpose clause. It, it lays out exactly the intention of Luke as he shares his story. And he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Um, he ties in our story. We're going to be tied to history. We're going to be tied to geography Luke is, is shoring up Theophilus' faith so that he knows the story from beginning to end, how it unfolds. And this is important for us as we go into Christmas. Christmas gets lumped into other holidays that maybe are more about fairy tales and, 
uh, fable. Um, I love Keith Green's song, one of the lines. It says, you're not some uh, fairy tale or, how's it go? Christ, not some fairy tale or fable. I, there might be there, no more than that, but I just like that song. I like Keith Green. So there's a, he sings about this a little bit. I'll move on. But that's just my plug for Keith Green because <laughs> I like him. And, uh, but, but Jesus isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a fictional character that we've sort of made up. And it's easy in the midst of the Christmas season to sort of think, oh, Christmas is one of these things that, that is just American. We just kind of go through the, um, the holiday season of gift giving and, and so on and so forth. But my heart in the next four weeks is that we would be grounded in the historical uh, things that happened with Christ coming to earth that the mystery surrounded him is totally grounded in the, the geography and the history of the day. And so that when we come to faith in him for salvation, we actually have a ton of evidence. I would suggest that an atheist lives by far more faith than those who are believers. Um, their God, just a little, you know, little, like their God is time. So the way they answer all of the difficult questions is they just say, there's just a lot of time, like billions and billions and gazillions of years. And if we could only replicate that much time, then we could do all of the things that have happened. They never deal with the question of origin, where does stuff and material come from? The Bible gives evidence, and it supports it. And so as we enter into verse 5, we have this phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. Now, we could quickly just sort of skim over this, and if we, if, we, if we skimmed over this, we would miss so much of what Luke is saying. Uh, this, is, this is Herod the Great. Uh, he ruled and reigned from B.C. 40 or 40 B.C. until about 4 B.C., uh, de- depending on when Christ was executed if it was, th- uh, I'm sorry, yeah, to 4 BC. So he, he was basically the shadow that Christ came in. Sorry, I was, my mind went a different place there. So this Herod the Great, um, he, he could have been probably one of the most evil people in all of human history. Um, he was confirmed by the Roman Senate, but he was never accepted by the Jews. He was part Jew, um, or a, a Jewish lineage. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau. He, he comes from the line of Esau. So he's, he's hated by the Jews. Um, he, he, was, he was a prolific builder. Um, the, the things that he built, and I'm trying to avoid political jokes, you know, like I thought, oh, if I could do my, if I had a Trump accent and I could do some stuff, he, you know, he built, he built hugely, you know, like he, he did, like if you go to Israel today, if you're able to make the trip with us one of these years, you will go to remnants of his, uh, uh, of the things that he built. The first, one of the first stops is, is Caesarea. And it's this huge, extravagant seaport with aqueducts that, that ran for miles and miles and miles. A, a, a amazing building just to go to Caesarea. Another place you'll go is down in the south to Masada, this huge fortress at top, which, which he built as sort of his vacation getaway. Um, the, the temple in which Jesus taught is known as Herod's temple. He took the temple. He said, hey, you guys want a temple? Let's make it big. 
like, let's go big or go home. And he expanded the temple and made it ginormous. Is that a word? Like huge. It's massive. And as he was building and and doing all of this stuff, he was ruthless. Um, Brutal, brutal man. It's, I can't even begin to scratch how many people he murdered and executed. Um, Erdesheim, who's a great uh, Jewish historian, he says, as long as he lived, speaking of Herod the Great, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life was secure. The word on the street was it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son, which he executed many of his family members, wives and ruthless. In fact, the one story we know about him from the New Testament comes in Matthew. And in Matthew, it says that as Jesus was born, the king got wind of this new king that was born, remember? And what did he do? He sent orders, tried to, he tried to, to, to sneak in there to figure out, well, where is this location? Then he gave orders in Bethlehem, right, to kill all of the boys under two years old. Only recorded in Matthew. Um, it's, it's not in in, in extra-biblical sources, it, history doesn't tell us about the story of this execution of, uh, of these Jewish young boys that were murdered in Bethlehem. Uh, now, it's believed that the reason for that, those that investigate history and sort of study stuff, is his murdering a handful of young children in Bethlehem didn't even make a... a, a like, it didn't even make the, the D section of the newspaper, like not even a paragraph in the, the very buried in the newspaper. For, for him to, to murder a handful of people in a small town, no big deal. But for the Jews who were living this and following and waiting for the Messiah and those Jewish believers who came to faith in Christ documenting what happened, that was a very big deal. But historically speaking, it was, it was nothing. It, it was... It was it was like to report on bin Laden killing a mouse one day. Like, who cares about that in the bigger picture of what bin Laden did? So this guy was evil. And so if we were to read this, and if you were reading this during Luke's day, when you read, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, this, this would read like, during the times of the greatest darkness, the most evil, the most horrific leader that the world has ever known or that we could ever possibly remember. There was this priest. He's setting the stage of the the backdrop of the world at this time. Uh, During the era, during this time of of Christ, Christ broke what is known as the 400 years of silence. Um, between the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and basically John the Baptist coming on scene, there's about 400 years of silence. Um, some significant historical things came about during this era. This, there's some historical books that we know as the Apocrypha, but that may be more than most of you um, care to know about. Uh, it's a story of the Maccabee, the Maccabean re- revolt, where the temple was basically... Um, they got the temple up and running again. It's why the Jews today celebrate Hanukkah. Um, but, but it was a time of, of, of great concern for the people. What was, what was God speaking? Was God still moving in our midst? This, this, we, we, we no longer have a nation. 
we operate this temple that this, this evil man built and, and is reigning and ruling the nation. And in the midst of this darkness, God is about to sort of turn on the lights. I think I've been thinking about turning on the lights as we're, you know, we got our fake Christmas tree up. There's nothing worse than Christmas tree lights. Like I, like, they're terrible. Like, like this year, it's like, okay, 10 lights don't come on. I'm done. Like, we have a tree with 10 lights missing off the top and a couple down here. And I, like, have tasked the kids if they can figure out, go for it. But if not, we're just content. <laughs> but the lights are about to come on. God, God is, is doing something in their midst. And I think that there's an initial just reading about in the king, the days of King Herod, the king of Judah. For us, if you don't feel like God is working or moving, to know that in the darkest times, God is still moving and is still in control. And he's about to do something in this story that is mind-blowing. And so we read about in verse 5, continuing, there was a priest named Zacharias or Zachariah, same, same word, either with an H or an S. So there's this priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Um, trying to figure out if I want to keep going. Yeah, I'll keep going. Verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So let me introduce you to this couple. Um, we have Zachariah or Zacharias, however you want to say it, it's fine. He is a priest. Um, not... That, that isn't such a big deal. There, there were, my stats here, kind of skipping ahead, there were 18,000 priests during this time, composed of 24 divisions with 750 men each, um, sort of scattered amongst the nations, serving in various synagogues. We know that Zechariah, uh, he was from a, a small a place, a, a nowhere place in, in, uh, in Israel, like a small little synagogue, um, we learn about Elizabeth, um, that she is the descend from the daughters of Aaron. So, so sort of in 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 modern day sort of teaching, she's so he's a, he's sort of a, a priest or a pastor in our understanding. Then there's Elizabeth, who's married to this priest, but she is the daughter of priests. So. So she's sort of like a pastor's kid that grew up, stayed sort of in the ministry of the daughters of Aaron. We, we learn about them that they, uh, they're both righteous in the sight of God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So this is a good couple. It's not saying that they're sinless or anything like that, but, but, but they walked with God. They loved God. They had faith in him. Um, as, far, as humanly speaking, um, they were in relationship with God. They honored him. I, I would suggest when it says this, this where they were both righteous, I believe that they walked by faith. Uh, the Old Testament, they had a future promise in the Messiah. We look back to the Messiah. But, but they had hope that the Messiah would come. They trusted God at his word. This is a good couple. Um, and I hear Jesus' word scolding me. But in the humanly sense, this, this is a good godly couple. They've been walking with the Lord for a long time. 
And then in verse 7, we get the but. They had no child. Um, because and Elizabeth gets sort of, uh, you know, put, put on the spot. She gets the sort of the responsibility because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So during this time, advanced in years, we're looking at like 60 years old. Is sort of the, the, that advanced in years is 60 years and older. So here's this, this uh, I always get nervous here. I always see Judy leaning over, and I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm like, <laughs> I, I thought you were about to get me in trouble. So she, <laughs> no, no, no. Now I'm in trouble because <laughs> she's whispering. I'm like, I'm getting in trouble because I feel like I got in trouble. Judy's off the, you know, she's not on the hot seat here. She, she's talking about something else. But so they're, they're advanced in years. They're, 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 at the, they're at the place where they would, you know, to have their children, to have the grandchildren, um, to, to be enjoying this season of their life. Um, during this, we'll see as the story unfolds, not to have a child during this era. This was viewed as that, like, God was not happy with you, that there was a reason that he didn't bless you with children. Um, you know, there's no Social Security, Medicare. Like, your, your family line, is that's who cared for you. So when you reach this age, your sort of retirement plan was to sort of just to move in with your kids or to be with your kids, and your kids would just take over uh, caring for you. But, but here they are. It's 60 plus. N- no child. Elizabeth would say in her own words at the end of the story that she was disgraced by this. But they're still serving God faithfully. It's interesting, like, thinking about the two of them as they navigate their lives in light of the meaning of their, their names. Um, Zechariah means the Lord remembers or the Lord watches over you. So every time Elizabeth looked over at her husband in the morning and said, good morning, Zacharias, it's like a reminder that God is looking after you. God is caring for you. And as, uh, as he looked over to his wife, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth's name means my God is an oath or my God is faithful or my God keeps his promises. And so here this couple, they... They were living for Lord, the Lord. They were beyond their childbearing years. And we see that they're still serving him going into verse 8. Now it happened that while he, that's Zechariah, was performing his priestly service before God at the appointed order of his division. So this is no big deal. I, I mentioned there's 18,000 priests over Israel. The 18,000 priests are divided into 24 divisions of 750 men each. And so we know from this that it was his regiment sort of season. The 750 guys were there to sort of run and operate the temple uh, for their rotation. Uh, Nothing really significant about this portion. However, the assignment gets more significant in verse 9. It says, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So this is significant. This is a, this is a Super Bowl type experience. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. If you're a Chargers fan, it's not. Um, that's a bad, bad, the illustration breaks down if you're a Chargers fan. Um, 
But if you drew the lot, if you were able to enter into the temple to, to do what, what is being required of him, you're no longer in consideration for future years. Like the odds that you're drawn out of 750 people was rare. And if you did get this, this opportunity, you no longer could have this opportunity again. This, this is a huge, huge deal. And so while they're serving, there's, there's things that are happening. There's a multitude of people gathered. He draws the lot to go in to basically to, to walk into the temple, light a match, burn the incense, head on out. Shouldn't take that long. This isn't like there's no lollygagging allowed in, in this area. He was to go in, do his duty, and then come back out. And so we see in verse uh, 10, and the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So, so here's the scene. I, I kind of want to show you guys some slides to, to help you. There's a couple slides here. We can go to the next one. Um, oh, there we go. Um, okay, so my big red arrow should help me for not having to point. Um, this, yeah, that'd be good. If, yeah, you just flip the bottom part. Just go, if you do the, yeah, there you go. Okay, so this is the temple area. Um, huge. These, these are the steps that Jesus would have sat on and talked in. If you go there today, this corner still remains. There's a stone that was toppled off. Um, the, the western wall, the wailing wall is on this section here. Um, to put it into perspective, the arrow, the arrow is pointing to the temple on the Temple Mount region. So you see that little building inside of the compound. I say little. So in your mind, try to imagine how big this, this temple is. Like, or the, 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 just where the arrow, that building there, the little T, if you were a skydiver, where you're supposed to land. Um, so it's a square, essentially, 60 yards by 60 yards. That's, that's six-tenths of a football field, 20 stories tall. So if you, in here, just imagine a football field, imagine how vast, I think it was 25 acres, the whole compound. It is it's massive. Today, this is the location uh, for the Dome of the Rock that you see when you look at the temple area. Uh, we can go to the next slide. We're going to zoom in a little bit. So then as we get in a little bit, we, just, we zoomed in. There's the front door there. So in that front region is where all the people are gathered uh, to pray. Uh, that, that's the building that's in the center that's 60 yards long, 60 yards high, or 60, you know, it's a square, so 60 by 60 yards. Uh, 16 to 20 stories high is what they say uh, is, this, is the guest. Um, so Herod the Great built a huge, massive complex for the Jews to worship. Uh, if you want to go to the very last slide here. So now we're zooming in. So down here, we have the front of it. All of the people, that's a little person there to kind of put it in perspective. I'm sure it's to scale. Um, so all of the people are here gathered. Zacharias would have entered into this region. This is a huge cloth, massive. I mean, I mean, probably cloth, it doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, describe its, its vastness. But this, this, is, this is the veil that separated the inside from the holiest of holies. So, so Zechariah didn't go into the holiest of holies. Only the high priest could do that once a year. So he's in this area, and this is where our story takes place. Um, you guys can leave that. You can leave this on there for now, but we can turn on the lights so that I can see the page. And yeah. the lights go out. I feel like it's nap time for my elementary school days. So it's like, okay, let's wake up, everybody. Okay, so 
So Zacharias, he drew the lot. He's going into the temple. He's to light his incense. And in verse 11, we read, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right of the altar of incense. So the very thing that he's supposed to go light, like if this is the altar of incense, he's supposed to light the thing. To the right of him, this angel is there. Now, I've never really come face to face with an angel, so I, let's just see how he's to react. Uh, standing to the right of the altar of the incense, verse 12, Zacharias was troubled. I believe that's probably fair. When he saw the angel and fear gripped him. It's like, I've never been in here. Is, like, is this normal for an angel to appear? Nobody told me about the angel situation. I just thought I was going to light this thing, burn some incense and get out of here. This is a place because we're getting for them the residence of God. Like, like the guys that went into the holiest of holies, they tied a rope to him in case he died in the presence of God so they could drag him out because nobody wanted to go in after him. And so now he's in this huge thing and this angel appears. He's gripped with fear. And now the angel says to him in verse 13, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. So as we look at this, in my study this week, I think that I might have read this wrong in previous years. Um, so when you look at this, what? So the angel says, your prayer has been answered. And so uh, I was instead of asking you guys questions to try to like show that you're probably thinking wrong also, <laughs> I won't do that. I'll spare you the private humiliation that I went through this week. Um, he says, your petition has been heard. And then we move on to the, the birth of the son or the promise of the son that would come. And so I've always kind of read this thinking, oh, you know, Zacharias is in here and he's still praying like, Lord, if you'd only give us a son. Um, some a scholar that I read this week sort of said, well, it's likely that that's not the prayer that he was praying. He's beyond his childhood years. At a certain point, you sort of give up on praying certain prayers. And if it was the case that it was the son that he was indeed praying for, the simple word and that we have, which is a chi, not a gar, which is a for, if you guys are in Greek scholarly work, he would have said, for your petition has been heard, for Elizabeth is going to have a son. But there's an and there. So he says, your prayer has been heard, period. We heard your prayer. It's been, it's been heard. We're going to respond. And also, separate from your prayer, your wife is going to have a son. When I think about his prayer, we only have to go to the next chapter. If you go to chapter 2, verse 25, so we've fast-forwarded the story past the birth of Christ, and Jesus, the young baby, now is back at the temple with his parents, and we're introduced to two people that are not really... There's Simeon and there's Anna. And if you read through the story, uh, I, I, I... I won't really read it for you. Um, this, this, this man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the, Lord's, the Lord Christ. 
If you fast forward down to where does Anna come in, verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband uh, seven years after she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of seven, 84, she never left the temple, serving it day and night with fastings and prayers. Um, this, so the story of these two people, these two people advanced in years in the temple, when they encounter Christ, we see that their prayers, what they had been longing for is that the Messiah would come, that the nation of Israel would be, consol- uh, uh, what is the word there? Blah, blah, blah the consolation of Israel, that the nation would be established again, that their, their Messiah would come. They were longing for God um, to, to, to speak, to, to move in their midst, to, to bring the nation back as a nation. Um, so I think that that, going back to our story, when Gabriel says, your prayer has been heard, I think that this man was praying for the Messiah, had been praying for their nation to be restored. This man who had faithfully served at the temple under these brutal, ruthless leaders, almost giving up hope. Lord, what are you doing in our midst? How is evil reigning and ruling over us? How is Rome in control? Hosanna, Lord, come. Send your Messiah. And so Gabriel here says, your petition has been heard in verse 13. And then he says, And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. I'm not even sure how he would have reacted to this. We'll see a little bit that he's a little caught off guard. But as you work through the description of this son and how it will come about, he says, you will have joy and gladness. So you and your wife, when this child comes, You're going to have so much joy, you're not even going to be able to contain yourselves. Then he says, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, I don't know if, I don't know that uh, at his birth there was a huge party per se. I'm sure there was a little one. I think what the angel is saying is that when people look back at John the Baptist, and even during that era, at his coming, that John the Baptist came, that people would rejoice that this in the New Testament, when you read John the Baptist, you have to think Old Testament prophet walking onto the pages of the New Testament. I believe that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he had a very specific purpose and calling. He says in verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. If you want to go to Matthew 11, you don't have to go there, but Matthew 11, 11, Jesus the Lord When he talks about John the Baptist, he says he's the greatest of all men that have ever lived, period. It says, and he will drink no wine or liquor. This is referring, believed, to the Nazarite vow. If you want to study up on the Nazarite vow, you could go to Numbers chapter 6. They weren't allowed to drink wine. Uh, They weren't allowed to cut their hair. And they weren't allowed to touch dead bodies. As we learned the story of John the Baptist, this guy was, I mean, he would have freaked you out. I mean, I think I envision him sort of in a potato sack bag with a head room cut out and he can stick his arms out with a belt around it sort of thing, dreadlocks because he's never cut his hair and they didn't have Vidal Sassoon back then. So he's like just totally a mess eating crickets and honey. 
Like the guy was a beast. Um, there are historians that say that the, the, in God's perfect timing, that, this came, that his coming came in the midst of a Sabbath year, so the people weren't allowed to work. The whole year was a Sabbath. So all of the crowds were able to come and to hear the ministry of John the Baptist. Beautiful thing. And so this whole Nazarite vow was to sort of to set the individual apart, to be consecrated to God. Uh, a, a word on alcohol, just I, I always, um, from Ephesians 5.18, the Bible says don't be drunk with wine. John the Baptist didn't drink alcohol, period, Nazarite vow. Jesus, on the other hand, he did drink wine. The communion was wine. The, the, the issue is drunkenness. The issue is, are you in control? Like, there was no breathalyzer. Like, I've done a lot of pondering on this over the years. Like, we sort of established drunkenness based on a breathalyzer or blood work. They weren't doing that. Um, The the Bible gives great caution about alcohol and the dangers of it um, because if you lose control of yourself. But on the other hand, the Bible gives allowances for alcohol to be consumed responsibly. And, and so I don't want to get wrapped up over the alcohol of drinking, but some would, and I'm probably already overreacting because some people say, oh, well, John the Baptist didn't drink, nobody should drink, and this was a big, you know. Um, so I'm just going to move on. Um, but this whole, he won't drink wine or liquor, it's the picture of, of, of this Nazarite vow that, that normally the Nazarite vow was for a, a small window. Um, it, was, it was not compulsory. You had the, you had the choice to, to enter into the Nazarite vow or not to enter into the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist had no say in the matter. He was told before he was born that he would be entering into this Nazarite vow. And we're also told that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. So before he was born, he would be filled by the Holy Spirit. Um, A a couple of things here. Um, The New Testament sort of says that the believer, when you believe upon Christ, that you're filled with the Spirit. This is a very unique situation. I would also point out that this is a huge verse, sort of why we as a church hold to the position of the sanctity of human life, that at conception, a child is a person in the womb. Just because they're inside of the womb doesn't make them less of a person than if they were outside of the person. Here we're told prior to even conception that at the moment of his existence in his mother's womb that the spirit would be upon him. Huge case for when does life begin. Uh, again, I'll move on uh, to save that for the January on our Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And then we get into verse 16. And he says, And he, speaking of John the Baptist, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is, so, so here, just kind of reminding ourselves, where's the story taking place? This is Zacharias speaking to an angel in sort of 
the closest area to the holiest of holies, he just he drew the Super Bowl ticket or the Willy Wonka ticket to the factory. He's inside to do his simple task and all of a sudden this angel appears to him and the angel says, your prayer has been answered and your wife is going to have a child. And then he begins talking about this child. And the last thing he says about this child is he's quoting from Malachi chapter three, the very last two verses of Malachi. I think it's five and six. Yeah, so Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. In Malachi 3, 1, there's another illusion of the, this promise of this, this, uh, this prophet that will come. And so in the temple, this, this Zechariah, who's been praying for the longing and the coming of the Messiah, is told that his prayer has been heard. And in addition to his prayer being t- heard, that the fulfillment of that prayer is going to come through this son of his barren wife, and they're advanced in years, and then this son will actually be for the fulfillment of that prophecy. Talk about being in an like Zechariah is in a is in an interesting position here. Like, what do you say when an angel approaches you? Like, what? Like, and then to think about the ministry. Um, thinking about John the Baptist as we're heading into the Christmas season, I can't, I can't help but to think about, you know, as, as great as the Christmas season is, like the whole from Thanksgiving to Christmas, kind of New Year's, sort of the, the Super Bowl of our holidays. Super Bowl's on my mind today for some reason. I don't know. Um, I keep saying it over and over again. But, but there's, this, there's this season of holidays. And, and this is a time that maybe isn't filled with joy, that this is a time where depression can strike people and, and, and sadness can happen. And I love that in the midst of this, that John the Baptist were told that his ministry, like at the end of it, it would sort of turn fathers and sons back together, people to be reconciled to one another. And, and so one of the things is that I've been thinking about, about this, this life and the spirit of Elijah coming through John the Baptist, is as we celebrate this season, as we rejoice in Christ, also I would say, how can you be an encouragement to maybe somebody who is not encouraged? To, to be proactive and, and even amongst one another. Like this is a difficult time for some. And so be sensitive to one another. Help us uh, to love on one another and to be an encouragement to one another. And so in verse 18, Zechariah has some doubts. So Zechariah said to the angel, this is like one of the dumbest questions in the Bible. Like this is like one of those, it's like, it's like right up there in the spirit of Peter. Like, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I, see, I love the This is so encouraging, his doubt, his concerns, his, the, 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 the people in the Bible are just people. Like we have doubts. We have like, how is it that God's born as a baby? Like, like seriously, the whole advent of Christ, what we're so, this is a mind-blowing sort of thing. You're telling me that God had a child through a virgin, and then this child was born, lived a perfect life, and you have placed your faith in him. Well, pre-converted gunner, I would have a hard time with the whole story. of It is a fairy tale. But the more I study and see the history, it's like, oh, wow, wow, wow. But so here's Zacharias. I'm encouraged by his doubt. I'm encouraged by his like, oh, <laughs> 
stupid. There's no such thing as stupid questions. Only people who ask questions, you know, like this is like, what's he asking here? Like you're in the temple, this angel appears and you're asking him, how will you know? And you tell him everything that he already know that he's already revealed to you. And then the angel, it's even better. So the angel for the first time, like really introduces himself. He said to him, I'm Gabriel. So I'm studying this this week, and I've been like reading through the Bible this year. And Gabriel appears in Daniel. The da- the Gabriel appears way back when, when they were taken into captivity to encourage Daniel. So he's like, do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel, the angel. Like you're, you're talking with me, the angel Gabriel. So that should, that should be all that I have to say to you. But he expands upon who he is. He says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Like my existence is in the presence of the creator. And this creator has sent me to speak to you to give you this message. Like this message, this good news which I have given to you came from the creator. And you're asking, how will you know? And then there's a little bit of a consequence. It says, and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words. Belief, there it is all through the Bible. From, like, belief isn't a New Testament thing. Belief starts in Genesis and it goes all the way to Revelation. It's belief, trusting God at his word for whatever it is that he shares with us. And Zechariah doubted the words that came from God. And so he, by his doubt, had subjected himself, he put himself in a position to be disciplined by the Lord. And when you operate outside of the faith, you, you, you put yourself in a position to be disciplined. And so his discipline is actually pretty funny to me, like in, as one who has kids who I have to like give disciplines to, like this is outside of my um, authority and ability to give this one, but this one just looks great. Like this is creative. This is humorous. I love it. Um, and as soon as I find my place, we'll look at it here. Okay. Uh, uh, verse 20, I think. Okay. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper timing. So how will you know? Oh, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. <laughs> I've just given you the greatest news of your entire life, the most amazing location and place, but you're not going to be able to communicate what just happened to you. This is beautiful. Like, this is wonderful. And so now he's done. It's time for him to go out of the temple. And who's outside of the temple? All the people who are wondering, what is taking this guy so long? Verse 21, the people are waiting for Zacharias. And when they were wondering about his delay in the temple, it's like every year this only takes... 50 minutes. And I don't know if you guys have been to a prayer meeting, but uh, they're normally low turnout because people really have, they don't like praying for long periods of time, in our culture at least. It's like, this is only supposed to take five minutes. We've been out here for 20 minutes. We can't leave because we're supposed to be praying. And it's like, where is he? What's going on? So, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I wonder if this is where the game charades came from. Like, like, I should, like, if I, I could point to Larry and make him flap his wings, 
He hasn't earned him yet. I don't even see Larry, but he's my target. So he's in the back there. Say, angel. And then, like, like, what's he doing to try to communicate to them? Clearly, they didn't know. Elizabeth, um, well, verse 23, it says, When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. What a beautiful, like, it says that she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, like, we don't know her story. Like, like we're told that she was barren. But we don't know the circumstances. Did she have a, a number of miscarriages? Like, in my knowing women, they get pregnant, especially after there have been complications or they haven't been able to. Like, this makes perfect sense. She put herself in a padded room, total seclusion, nobody around, no stress. Joseph's, like, giving her eight cups of water, making sure she's eating all her leafy green vegetables. And, you know, here's your kale. you got to eat this, honey. Like, you got to do everything to, like, this is the most amazing thing that's happened. So they are in seclusion just glowing over what God has done. And Joseph, or Zacharias is still not speaking. So I guess he couldn't say, hey, eat this green leafy. Like, I don't, like, like, I don't know. Like, it just makes me wonder. Like, I don't get the impression that he could write to explain to her. She just kind of took my faith. And ah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, like, story. And your, your mind can really get wrapped up into it, trying to imagine. Um. So Elizabeth, his wife, verse 24, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Beautiful story. And this is all the lights have been turned on. In the darkest hour, God begins to speak. And there's hope of the coming of the Messiah that John the Baptist would sort of give the uh, you know, give the the welcoming, like it's coming, it's here, things are happening. Next week, we'll look at Angel Gabriel's going to five months later, you know, I don't fly or appear way north up in Nazareth, and he's going to have a conversation with, with Mary, who handles the whole thing way better than, than Zacharias did. Um, but it's this beautiful story in the midst of darkness that, that lights are coming on, in the midst of sort of the mundane, like Zechariah, they've been praying, they've been going through their routine. Is is God even working? Is see that God is working sometimes in the mundane. Um, as we close, I think there's a couple things that I want us to take from the story. Is first and foremost, this isn't a fairy tale. The, the historical evidence and geography surrounding the birth and life of Christ are over, like overwhelming. As we celebrate Christmas, let's not let Jesus get drowned out in our celebrations. And I love, I love the holidays. I love this time of year. But to recognize that, that God became man. He took on flesh in Christ. This is historically accurate. As, as, as mysterious as it is, the mystery of Christ is surrounded in historical and geographical evidence supporting the claims that eyewitnesses gave their lives for the things that they saw and heard and that Jesus taught. I would tell us to take heart in the midst of darkness. Don't think that God's not working. He is moving. He is active. He's alive. He's, he's working. 
And from John the Baptist, we need to prepare our hearts to receive Christ. If you've never trusted his Christ as your Savior, to receive him. And if you've received him, it's not like you did it once and then you go on about your life. It's, it's we need to receive Christ daily. We need to allow him to speak to us. We need to seek him and allow him to guide us in the ins and outs of our lives. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this the story of, of the birth of Christ, which, which, which Luke begins with this introduction explaining and affirming the historical groundwork that he did, painstaking, and that he has placed this before us so that we could understand the history of what happened miraculously some 2,000 years ago. Father, we look forward uh, to celebrating Christmas this year. Father, I pray that you would help us to be enlightened over who Jesus actually is. Lord, if there's confusion of fairy tale and fables surrounding him, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, help us to come to Jesus the Lord. Where we doubt, where we have questions, where we have concerns, Father, I ask that you would help us um, to seek out and find answer to the questions that we have. We understand that ultimately we, we have to come to you by faith, but we thank you that there is so much historical evidence authenticating who Jesus is that we can have a faith that is reasonable We thank you, Lord, for this life, for our church family, for our family and friends. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a light unto you for this during this season. And it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.